Hey there, Krakens and Serpents. Welcome to another episode of Campaign Spotlight. I'm Production Master Riley. And I'm Dungeon Inspector Jake. This week, we're chatting with Sam, who's the new DM for two of my old players from a long-running campaign that also included Prim and Chris from our last two interviews. In this episode, we'll be talking about running fun and creative combat encounters. We're looking forward to the challenge of discussing some really impressive visuals in an audio format. (laughs) Check out the show notes for links to pictures of sets Sam built for their campaign. Let's roll initiative. Our adventurers find themselves on the gloomy shore of the eastern coast of the continent of Wildmount. Gray skies stretch out in every direction, and sullen faces of conscripted soldiers, sort of like a foreign legion for the Dwendali Empire in this far-flung corner of the world mill about. The Dunrock Mountains rise up to the west, craggly and inhospitable, and you have a deep sense of foreboding that the last five years of war that all of you have been doing so well to avoid are now going to finally catch up with you. Sam, welcome to Campaign Spotlight. Thanks for having me. Uh, Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into tabletop games? Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, artist and a tutor and uh, other things. Ended up in California, and the pandemic hit, and a friend of mine who lives in New York that's an actor uh, had been trying to get me into D&D for a while. Uh, and was like, you're really going to like it? And I was like, I don't know if I'm a role-playing game guy and then over the pandemic was like no let's set up a game we're gonna use roll 20 we'll do it uh and got a bunch of other actors and it was all of the shit that i liked about doing improv and theater and writing and all of that stuff just here uh and then on top of that all of the that like part of my brain that just loves complexity and rules and mythology, right? There's just, like, books of stuff to go through. Uh, also, just really liked it. And uh, we played in a campaign for a while that he was DMing, but he, he was basically like, I wanted you to play D&D because I think that you'd like DMing and you'd be good at that. Uh, so we got... Uh, I had two... I had another game going here, like an in-person, uh, and then scheduling got to be an issue, and I have another in-person campaign going now that we just did a little little intro for. Can you tell us a little bit about this campaign that you've been running? Uh, yeah, so it's in Wildmount, uh, which is where most of the campaigns I've been in or running have been, because, well, I don't know, once I got invested in the place, there were so many parts of it that I wanted to explore and not enough time in any one campaign to do all that. Um, and this version of Wildmount is about five years after the one that's in the book or on Critical Role, which I'm aware of, but haven't really listened to or watched much. Uh, so the war between the Crin and the Dwendalis has been going for five years. And I took Mercer's original, like, sort of Balkan World War, World War One setup that he was using for Wild Mountain was like, cool, what does, like, five years of a horrifying war like that do to a whole continent? Uh, and just spread out the, like, misery, but also the sort of profiteering and smuggling uh, 
that would go on into the rest of it to build up the world. And the campaign started with our adventures all being captured and conscripted by the Dwendali army. And then uh, finding a way to satisfy their their military compulsion uh, while still making it away with a, a boat that one of them started with. Yeah, I think it's pretty important to give the characters a boat or an airship or something like that if that's, you know, it makes the game a lot more fun somehow. I, it just, there's that thing is sometimes, like, you can spend a bunch of a session just, like, setting up the home base. What's the cool stuff that we have here? And, like, a floating home base is pretty cool. Uh, they recently acquired a crew. They, they took on a bunch of people fleeing a town overcome by a chaos god. Uh who are already water people, and so now are crew, so in case they need to leave the boat to go do some land campaigning for a while, the boat can meet them someplace. Oh, that's perfect. In a campaign that I was running during COVID lockdown with some of your current players, um, they had a carriage, and it had cool features, uh, but it was often very hard for them to find out how were they going to bring it with them, how it, would, how it would come to them, things like that. So having a crew sounds like a good call. Uh, I also have a... Uh... You ever have those, like, NPC characters that you fall in love with, so they sort of uh, go from campaign to campaign with you? Uh, and there was a, an, an orphaned sea elf named Dilyu, uh who had been in one campaign uh, that petered out, so I figured that uh, we could start off with him being a stowaway on the boat once they reclaimed it. Uh, so they sort of have this, like, young, naive... Uh, just like like permanent bastion of uh, uh, pity or sympathy uh, uh, in, in the game to add a, a little bit of uh, extra pathos. And is that the closest you have to a DMPC? Uh, no, there's also, I have a, my, my own version of the Traveler that I use a lot, which isn't really like a DMPC because he's a god, demigod. Uh but no, Dil Dilyu is mostly there for, like, if I need to raise the stakes in any scene, we can put Dilyu in danger uh, and, like, really tug at everybody's heartstrings. To the, and, 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 like, I, I set up that character too well in this campaign because somebody drew a, a level four fighter from the deck of many things and has just assigned that as a permanent bodyguard for Dilyu going forward. It's been a lot of fun. I guess that... There's also kind of diminishing returns. You can only put the sympathetic character uh, in danger so many times before the party realizes you're never actually going to kill your favorite character. Um, or you lull them into that false sense of security and then kill Dilyu. I'm horrified, but also I want to be a player in one of your games. <laughs> How was it to run, uh, this is a little bit off topic and I apologize, but I'm, I'm always so curious about it. How was it to run Deck of Many Things with your party? Oh, so, uh, I, uh, one of the, the players in the campaign is also a part-time DM. Uh, so doesn't have his own campaign going now, but is like a DM. And he's the one that I gave the deck to. So, like, there is also a player in the game who realizes that this is an item best used in moderation and seen as though he's mostly in control of it. There's, like, a good balance. Because there's a part of me that, like... Oh, I had a friend uh, 
the guy who brought me into DM to begin with, uh, who, uh, I don't know where he got the quote from, but he was like, sometimes people think, you know, you should really like work up to certain items in the game, but also sometimes it's fun to give your level one characters just a nuclear weapon and then see what they do. And the deck of many things I felt like, because it, it came early. It was like, I think in the first session, I gave them uh, uh, each an item that was way overpowered uh, just to see what would happen. Uh, and so I'm more inclined towards the chaos and having a player in the game who's a little bit more inclined towards moderation makes a nice balance. Yeah, if you're giving out the deck of many things in the first session, you definitely want players who aren't going to be like, I draw 45 cards, let's see how this goes. Because then your whole party's in Prison Gems, yeah. Uh, I think also, like, there was... <sighs> there was enough of an aura of fear around the item that, like, when we did finally get to drawing from the deck... Because it, it took a bunch of sessions before it showed up, before anybody took any cards. That, like, once we got there, uh, people were, were going at it with, like, a proper temerity. That's, I think, the optimal balance. And sometimes when you give a powerful item out... It's, it's too powerful. Um, I gave my party the deck of many Tarasks, and uh, they just didn't draw any cards from it because uh, they didn't want to see what would happen. What would happen would be a Tarask, for the record. But <laughs> um, it, it was maybe an item where I gave them something cool early in the campaign. They're like level five, and they just they were too afraid to ever, to ever touch it. So I have a, a standing rule that I will, like, occasionally refresh my players on. But, like, as a rule of thumb, and I'm not saying right away or... But, like, if I give you a cool thing and you use the cool thing, you will get another cool thing. You don't have to worry about using the items in-game. That's why they're there. Use them. There will be more fun ahead. That's a really good approach, especially for, like, the really damaging items, right? Like, uh, in a campaign that I ran once, they had the... Is it the scroll of some of comet summoning? You basically can cast a ninth level meteor swarm with a scroll, and they never really ended up using it because I mean it does 150 points of damage on average to everyone within a mile. That's that's amazing. Um, yeah, you'd you'd really have to like get them up on like an appropriate cliffside where you could see enough of the country to direct a sure. uh, mile area of effect. There's also, I think, like, there's a lot of items that are good single-use items anyway. So, like, yes, this is overpowered, but it is overpowered once. Or if there's a thing that I want to give to the players without breaking the game, uh, like, maybe it shows up cracked, and every time we use it, we have to roll a d6. And if you ever hit a 6 on that, then it shatters and it's gone forever. Uh, just to, like, put some limit. Like, no, we can have the big outrageous fun over here, and then also if it needs to go away, that's going to happen at some point. One aspect of your campaign that is, I think, really distinctive, and it's wild that this is distinctive, when you think of tabletop games fundamentally coming out of, like, World War II-era war games, uh, is the, the grid-based combat, right? A lot of home games, people do theater of the mind or something a little more abstract. You have sets, uh, yeah. Sorry, I feel like I cut you off. Uh, no, oh, I do. No. I have I have sets, and when I'm not playing D and D, I I tutor and I sculpt, and I started sculpting with uh, cardboard and paper. 
uh, and when I started playing D&D. It was actually, part of it was DMing and trying to figure out what the session's going to look like, and some part of my brain was like, no, I want to look at it. Like, if I'm going to have a thing that happens at a temple and I want to, like, put all of the cool stuff for them to find and encounter and whatnot. Like, I just, I wanted to look at it physically and I had all this cardboard for making stuff. And I was like, well, fuck it, let's make it. Uh, and that started the, like, foray into making sets. And mostly the making them now is less about the combat and more about when I showed that first table, the first set... And they were really into it. I wanted that feeling again. So, like, the, the sets are as much for me and for mood as they are for actual play. Uh, and sometimes, like, the grid is helpful. And sometimes... Sometimes we'll dip out of the grid and into the theater of the imagination for combat, uh, depending on what's happening. So the sets are not literally just for, like, initiative. You're also using them in kind of roleplay type settings. Yeah, so, like, uh, so I wanted to do uh, a naval combat scene, have two boats fight each other. Uh, and so, like, I made two boats, and we put the boats out, and they have grids on them, and then I did layers in the boats, so if you wanted to go below deck, there were little rooms and things down there. And I had two boats, and part of it was, like, it's fun. It's fun to everybody have their little pieces and move the boats, and you can have them sailing up and all of that, and because I didn't know how to run naval combat, I figured, like, having things on the table would make it a little easier. But then also, like, that's the boat that this campaign is using as their boat. And, like, having their boat on the table, that they get to be like, that's our boat and it looks kind of cool, just adds a, a, a greater sense of you know, camaraderie or, uh, I don't know, table fun. It seems like it really helps them understand that there's some some permanency almost that there's uh that this is kind of downtime is happening in this game there's not just adventures we're on a boat uh when not otherwise discussed um yeah, and then like we had a uh uh so, so uh there is a cult committed to trying to bring one of the, the betrayer gods into this plane. And so we found a desecrated temple of the Luxon that had been turned into a temple to Grumsh. And so, like, when I'm describing, like, oh, you're going up this hill and you see a building in the shadows and the depths of the forest forward, and then, like, I pull out from the below the table this little, like, desecrated temple to Grumsh. It's, it's, uh, it's a different reaction than me just describing what it looks like, you know? Uh, and everybody gets to take a minute and, like, peek around and, yeah, 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 for, for those kind of moments at the table. This does sound like it's a ton of preparation for those moments. Uh, yeah, and I did, I did have a standing rule when we started the campaign that, like, not every session will be as elaborately... Uh, furnished, but also, uh, we play every other week. So I got a two week run up 
for any stuff that goes on, which it's kind of nice to play a session and then not think about D&D for a week. Or at least, like, not think about DMing a game for a week and then still have a week of prep uh, to go in. And then also the players in this campaign, uh, who I adore, are... They're, they're there for that role play. And there are some times where I know, like, okay, we're probably going to play for, like, four or five hours. But at least an hour and a half of this is just going to be this scene that these two PCs have to work out. Because that's been building up and, like, they're going to take their time and have some fun with that. Um, or, like, when we do have the occasional stopover in a tavern. There's part of me that's like, you need to prep some people for them to interact with. And, like, where we might head out from here. But also, like, your players might just want to spend a while being goofy and drinking ale and playing games in the tavern. Like, just three hours of role-playing going to the bar. Uh, okay, so I had a... Uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't even in this session, but one of my friends was playing in a campaign and somebody died. One of the PCs died and everybody was devastated. Uh, and the whole next session was just a funeral and there was no dice rolls, nothing. They just like role played that funeral to say goodbye to that PC. Uh, and I think one of the players at the table cried and it was like, it was a thing, which, uh, I have been hoping to have in one of my games, not exactly that, but like that thing at some point. But I think you, you need to earn that. That has to come after, uh, your players are fully emotionally invested. Right, you can't in, in episode three have the lich pop out, cast power word kill, and step through a portal uh, just to give them some pathos. Yeah, 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 exactly. I, I guess on average, how often are the players encountering a ruined temple or going to a new tavern? Uh, what is the frequency of, of, of giving them a new set piece to explore? Uh, usually once a session, but like... Uh... So you've run campaigns. There's that fun thing when you, you've set up uh, a little like moment of combat or a thing. And in your head, you're like, well, maybe an hour. And then you're like, oh, no, that was that was like five hours of combat that everybody was really into. Uh, which was like I, there was uh, a giant worm. I think it's called the Eater of Worlds. Uh, that that I had is like this monster show up from that desecrated temple. And one of my favorite things about that monster is if you hit it in one turn for more than 20 points of damage, instead of dying, it splits into two smaller worms. Ah, uh, and it keeps on doing it until it's low enough. And so like, I was like, oh, I have this big one, big monster, but there's five of them. Uh, and it'll be a fun combat, but not a super long combat. And then it like, it did draw out, and not in a tedious way either, in like a, a fun winding way. But it took it took a, a, almost two sessions for that combat, which was not a thing that I was planning. I know that feeling as we're taping this. Uh, tomorrow is the third session of what was planned to be a one-shot with my friends, because uh, combat is taking a long time. They're all high level, and they all have a lot of spells and abilities, uh, so one round of initiative is an hour. These monsters you're describing, you know, the, the worm that splits into it, it splits every time it takes 20 damage and so on. This has me thinking, do you have minis for these? Like w when the players are interacting in a physical set, what does the what do the NPCs look like? For that matter, do the players have minis? 
Uh, so, uh, if and when I have the, like, time and no other projects that I want to do, then I will get to whittling minis for the players out of wood. Whittling! Like theirs. Ah. Uh, but for right now, we have, like, tokens that can go on the board. And then for the first session that we had, and I think that was, like, the most elaborate thing that I had, there was, uh... There was a whole hill with a ravine leading up to a ruined temple that had a basement. Like, it, like, opened up, so there was a basement down below. Uh, and that one came with... Uh, there was a rock that I made out of cardboard, and, like, simple. And then a simple frost giant uh, that I made out of cardboard. Uh... So, like, those were on the board, but they were more like, I have wire and some cardboard, and this will look kind of cool. We can do this. Uh, most of the time, the NPCs are, uh, especially in combat, theater of the mind with maybe, like, a token down so everybody knows where they are. The last session that we played, um, one of the characters, one of the PCs in this campaign... Uh, has some sorcery, they're multi-classing, and the sorcerer part of them came from their mother being attacked by a green dragon while pregnant, and she died from it, uh, and this, this Harrington rabbit got some, some, uh, green dragon poison running through his veins, uh, that led to some sorcerer powers and then some other fun, like, uh, effects. And so this last stop in the campaign, we met that green dragon and I built a giant green dragon for the thing. Cause it was like, it's the first time we've had a dragon in the campaign. It's the first time I've put a dragon into a Dungeons and Dragons campaign. And I was like, if you're going to do a dragon, do a dragon. So how big was this dragon you built? Well, I think it was about three feet um, end to end. <laughs> yeah, it was about three feet long, and then the wingspan was about two feet wide. Uh, the only thing that I... So, my original idea, and I didn't, because I, I didn't have the time to figure out the engineering, but I wanted to do it like a pop-up book, where I would have, like, a temple that you couldn't tell was going to fold open, and then fold it out and have the, like dragon erupt out of it because it would have been a really fun reveal to do at the table uh but i couldn't i couldn't work out the mechanics in a timely fashion so we just made one out of cardboard but it was uh it was fun to bring the dragon out and also like uh that was that was a it was a balance to what ended up being a pretty emotionally devastating session because nobody was at a level to, to really defeat the dragon. Uh, and the dragon was kind of there to let them know that there is a, a bigger enemy awaiting them further down the line. So like having the fun of you got the, the model. Uh, counterbalance the, the near TPK that happened to me. To <laughs> <laughs> right, and they'll be seeing that dragon again. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the other. If I'm if I'm going to like make an NPC, it's probably because that NPC is coming back. Um, we also okay. So in the very first session, when they when they landed and 
uh, they were sent on a recce that they'd been hearing noises up in the Dunrock Mountains and they didn't want to commit any of the, the more seasoned soldiers they had at this outpost to go check it out. So these new recruits were going to go sent up and they sent just two soldiers to guide them. And on the way, they met this rock. Uh, and it, it wasn't a scripted death, but the, the rock killed one of the soldiers, uh, Myrtle. There's Myrtle and Philip, and the players had assumed that Myrtle and Philip were together, which was not backstory that I had written. But once they got going with it, I was like, no, this is kind of compelling. We're here. And then Myrtle died. Uh, and Philip ended up not going back to camp. He ran away. And so between sessions, I have been tracking Philip's exploits since then. Uh, and so, like, the last time they rolled into a tavern, there was a bard who was there and, and told us the, the first of the adventures of Brave Sir Philip and what he's done since they left him in session one. And so I've been trying to, like, keep track of where he's made it in the, in the continent and his further exploits. And I have a little character sheet for Philip that is slowly leveling up. So when we do meet Philip again, there'll be, like, a good long backstory for them with that. I guess we need to wait to air this episode until after the Philip reveal. So, so they they know that Philip is out there and doing okay. stuff. Uh, so this this shouldn't be a spoiler for them. Uh, <laughs> we'll tag this episode with a spoiler warning for like these four people exactly and no one else. Uh, my 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 friend was saying that on uh, on Reddit, one of the the DM subreddits, when people post. They will, like, say the name of their party, like, don't read any further, and then ask their questions. <laughs> I mean, you got to, because I'm assuming you're going to compel all your players to listen to this podcast. And then they, they hear it, and they're like, oh, shoot, the green dragon's coming back. Now we know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, although, like, I, I feel like we, uh... The ending line when the dragon had almost killed the whole party was, was he leaned into the, the Harrigan, whose mother he killed, and just said, uh, I can do this whenever I want, and flew off. So they should know that he's going to come back. Uh, yeah, it was, it was like a good villain line that I workshopped with some friends before I brought it to the table. I was like, what's the most devastating thing we can say at the end of this? Uh... This sounds like such fun creative combat that kind of gets away from the whole uh, three giant rats run in roll initiative. <laughs> uh, so I think combat is the place where I think I struggle the most, which probably means it's the place I'm doing the best at because it's where I'm spending a lot of time working on. Like, I... I think we've all been in a campaign at some point where you're having a combat and, and you have, like, lost what happened in the last six people's turns because it's been going on for forever. And uh, to try to, like, keep combat moving, keep conditions changing, and then, like, try to remember as much of the things that my players were excited about so that they have opportunities in the combat to do that fun thing that they built in for their character at the last level up. Right, like, if you've got this spell that you were super excited to tell me about you were taking when you got level 5, then, like, hopefully at some point in this combat I gave you, you'll get to do the fun spell. 
Oh, absolutely. And and with non-combat spells, they'll find an excuse to use Skyrate. You don't have to tell them, <laughs> oh, hey, this might be a good time to use Skyrate. They'll use it nonstop. But for like combat stuff, it has to be that specific moment that you've engineered for them to use it. Uh, and this is like a slightly different topic too, but we were talking about the like the fun of putting items in the game and uh, all right. So the guy who brought me in and DM the first campaign I was in his like DM forefather who brought him into the first campaign uh, at some point introduced the alchemical jug and was just like, here it is. And that has been one of my favorite items since then. And it's cause when you're going down the list, it's all like, Oh, water, poison, acid. These are great. And then you just get to two gallons of mayonnaise and everybody stops and you can see every player being like, Oh, what situation could we use two gallons of mayonnaise? And I think it's a question I always want my players to be having in their head is when is two gallons of mayonnaise going to make <laughs> this session more fun? I really like that way of thinking. And I'm assuming in your deck of many things, like half the cards were just mayonnaise. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just just like you, you, you are mayonnaise. You have mayonnaise. <laughs> mayonnaise will visit you when you least expect it. <laughs> the deck of many mayonnaise. Um, uh, I guess I'm curious because you said that combat is something that you've really been working on and putting a lot of effort into. Do you find yourself erring on the side of kind of crunchy technical combat, especially with these sets where you can think about things like line of sight and really uh, get AOEs? Um, how crunchy, how technical does your combat tend to be? Uh, I think that, like, for me, the... All of the rule sets, all of the, like, all of that is for balance in the game. And so, like, I crunch as hard as I think I need to to make sure that, like, the game has the level of balance that makes sure we're all having fun. And then uh, when... When those rules get in the way of the emotion of the story that we're telling... Uh, then I tend to like eschew them a little bit. Um, but like, like I think that's so in the in that first the first set that I built, it has this like long hill that you have to go up, and uh, at the top of the hill, what they found out was that there was a bunch of gnomes from Hopper Duke who had essentially like the D and D version of a Gatling gun. So the run up the hill had like a machine gun shooting down at them, but I built into the set like areas of cover so they could run between things and there was stuff there. So for that one, like we use the sets and the rules a lot, right? And here's the area of effect and how much cover you have and that kind of stuff. Cause I had built it into the set to make it more fun. Uh, but then like, uh, oh, I'm trying to think of, there was a really good moment in one of the boat combats that we had where one of the players suggested something so left field. And it was one of those where like, well, I could interpret that rule as you can't do this, or I could interpret this rule as, no, that's exactly how that works. And uh, like more fun and satisfying to like, let this player try out this super clever thing that they came up with. Ah. Uh, not on the boat. There was 
So in the in the desecrated temple, a portal was opened, and one of the generals of the army of Grunch came march, marching out. Uh, and our uh, one of our players had gotten sovereign glue. And while this like super high powered OP character was assembling his army and giving a speech, he glued his feet to the ground. And and I was like, there's there's a minute time for the glue to set. And I was like, great, well let's roll some dice. Let's roll some dice and see if this guy is gonna like strut while he's giving a speech or stand there and let that go, cause like that's so much more fun. And it's easy to be like, well, nobody's gonna stand still for a full minute. But also like this is a hellspawn general, and maybe like that's the thing that's scary about him is he doesn't move that much. Cause he'd been doing a real like calm, collected, cool thing. Uh and then also it's the fun of in between games. I'm now trying to figure out how long it would take for we're on like the out by like the blight shore on the far end of Wildmount for anybody who knows that map. How long it would take to get any of the like few items that can undo sovereigns glue across the country so this general can get unstuck. <laughs> I absolutely love that. And and that's the kind of move where, okay, this doesn't necessarily we're not gonna do the full crunch. We're not gonna have you explain blow by blow how you're doing it. It's just such a funny scene and such an effective use of a quite frankly, a really weird item. Uh so uh Marquise, who you know, uh his character had gotten an immovable rod and in yes! the Eater of Worlds fight had gotten swallowed by the worm and was like what happens if I just, like, put the immovable rod up inside the worm? And it was like, oh, oh, no, that's... That. And we, we all had a moment. You could see the whole table just kind of went like... And we were all picturing it, and then it was like, oh, yeah, no, that's, that's such a clever thing. Because the worm had been thrashing around. It's not likely to stop. Yeah. Uh, and so the worm tore itself apart from the inside, and that was like... A real, a real good moment of improvised damage amount and and everything else that was like super fun to have in the game. I absolutely love that. I think it would be pretty hard to make a uh, an immovable rod uh, prop for one of your sets. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It just hovers in midair. You're like, yeah, I made this out of cardboard and wire. <laughs> um, although it would be fun to like get a little magnet set up. To uh to get the thing to float in the air, right? Yeah, that would be so cool. I think that would be yeah, magnets above and below yeah. it. There's uh, and it's 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 far too expensive to do for like one session D and D campaign. But there's a company that makes um, if you send them a thing that is metal or has metal in it, they will custom build a magnet pad to levitate that thing uh and like depending on how much you're willing to spend i think they can do like up to 800 pounds of having something it was like really crazy what they can do um those those are like i imagine for industrial purposes because the price was also incredible but there's a little bit of me that ever since i found out there's people that do that has been thinking like what can i float what can i make and just have float like a real-life Tensor's floating disc. Yeah. yeah they yeah, cast yeah. it, and you just, like, haul it out of the closet. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. This is the 
This is that first set that I made. Oh, what? <laughs> oh, um, God, that's amazing. And then uh, this opens up. Oh! <gasps> A full reveal. That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> That is... <laughs> Alright, yeah, we, we gotta figure out some way to, like, have pictures in the show notes or something. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can send you some shots. I, the, Thank the you other, so much. The other one that I made... Um, and I won't move around too much, because I know for recording it's no good. Um, but you can see it on top of my fridge. That's the boat. Wow! <laughs> Wow! <laughs> and then there's the, uh, the, like, cliffs behind it. And the cliffs open up to reveal, like, a <laughs> Oh, lion. what? What? Oh, like, a little mushrooms? Yeah, yeah. So, in the in-story, uh... Oh, this might be a spoiler for any of my, my people listening. So, like... Okay, skip. we'll put it... We'll, I promise we'll put a spoiler warning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um... Well, no, they know a lot of this. Uh, so, the the traveler, uh, m- my traveler, is is a demigod trying to ascend to godhood, as one does, and has a plan for it. But part of the consequences of five years of magical war on the continent is that the divisions between the planes are starting to loosen. So that's like the Feywild plane spilling into this plane hidden down there in the cliffs. Uh, and so the, the traveler met them there and was like, here, here's the thing that I need your help with is that there's uh, a general weakening between the planes and there's some less friendly gods that might try to creep through. And create another calamity. Uh, but also there are weapons hidden throughout the land that could help a, a party of adventurers such as you keep a god like that at bay. Because uh, it's nice to have story points laid out already. Um, yeah, so he met them in the Feywild. And then also, like, everything about the Fey is fun. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Can um, you tell us... Oh, go, oh, go for it. Sorry, no, no, sorry, no, no, sorry. You go, you go. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, can you tell us a bit about how you build these sets? Uh, they look fucking phenomenal. And you said they're made out of uh, cardboard and wire? Uh, so these ones are all cardboard. The... Um, one second, one second. Yeah, yeah, Oh. Is someone coming in? So these are a little bit simpler, and this one's, like, clearly not to scale, but, like, here's the little rock. Right, so that's just, like, uh, really two pieces of cardboard that I folded and cut. And then this guy, which is a little more wire-heavy. This is the Frost Giant. Wait, so the frost giants articulated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he can move a little bit, uh, which is fun. But, like, 
<laughs> so his range of movement is limited by the balance of the piece, because if he leans too far one way or the other, <laughs> it just topples over, which seems appropriate for a giant, I feel like. Yeah. Like, um, so those ones have the wire. These, um, like this castle set and the other ones, are all just cardboard. I, uh, I think you can see it. Outside, you see that house? Yes. Um, the house out there is the first thing that I ever sculpted, and it's the middle of the day, so it won't work, but there's like 211 little LEDs in there, and the glass in its two-way mirror. So when it's lit up at night, you can see in, but then all the glass inside acts as mirrors. Um, <clears throat> and I spent a thousand hours making that. Um... The house part of it. So, like, learned a lot about making stuff with cardboard. Which is cool, and you would think would also make me faster now, but, like, doesn't. They take forever. <laughs> right. For one of these sets, how long is that taking to build? So, I, I have a rule now that I can't spend more than, like, one full day prepping objects for the D&D campaign. But, like... Uh, cause I tutor most of my days are my time. So I'll wake up in the morning and then until I have to go teach work on a thing. And then when I come home, hopefully finish it off. And then if it like looks a little bit rougher than I want, spray paint often helps to give it a little bit more of a finished feel. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. And then sometimes I get like halfway into a thing and I'm like, Oh, this is better than I thought it was going to be. And then I spend a bunch of time like working on the details and things. Cause and how do your players interact with these sets? Like when when you show them these sets, are they are of course they're wanting to look at them, look at all the details as we've been doing. Are they in game wanting to run all over them as well? Uh yeah, for the most part. Uh this one especially cuz it's set up for that. And there's um there's a little rope bridge there. Uh which <laughs> so the one thing that we didn't get to do with the sets which it would be fun to do at some point is where I live, I have the space to have fires in a fire pit. And one of the characters loves to set things on fire. Uh, playing inside, you definitely can't do that with the set. And if you don't want to burn the whole set, that would get tricky. But uh, it has been fun every time we've been in a thing. I think every combat we've had, this player has set things on fire. Uh, and it is fun having the physical thing here. And I can be like, well, all of this is on fire now. Right, and then like we do a round, and it's like, well, now all of this is on fire. Um, uh, that player recently burnt the boat that they all share. Uh, and then spent a while repairing the boat. Do you make them role play the repair? Uh, so, so, like, I, I... The, the table that we play at is... Uh, queer, gay, for the most part. Um, and it is a nice table to have for many reasons. Uh, and I think, like, the part of the D&D &D community that I've been most hanging out with anyway. Uh, <clears throat> and so when they took on the crew, uh, 
I came up with like descriptions of who this crew was, right? These were people who were fleeing this town that had been been taken over by the followers of Grumsh and they just wanted to be you know, fisher people. Uh, but it had to be a big enough crew that like if they wanted to leave the boat, they could go. So there are um, two goblin couples on the boat. Those are kind of like non-binary lesbian couple. Uh, and then there is an... Uh, asexual, homoromantic bugbear and a um, ethically non-monogamous, hedonistic thruple of orcs. So, so when the boat got burnt and they were repairing the boat, there was also like all of these new crew members for for work time conversation things going on. Yeah, yeah, And then uh, we've recently introduced a little bit of intrigue for one of the players, and I, I put that into the repairing. So, yeah, no, I did make them role-play the repairing. There was not a lot of it, but, like, yeah. And so the players are really... They really do engage with and interact with kind of these physical worlds that they're in, uh, kind of both in combat and just during the fun role-play part of D&D. Uh, yeah, yeah, we we slide, like, between Theater of the Mind and the sets, but, like, one of the sets that I made you couldn't even play on. It was just, like, I think this is what this town would look like when you sailed up to it. So that one was not interacted with at all. There's another set that they haven't met yet um, that is highly interactive because it is filled with traps. Um, and it'll be fun when they do listen to this because they won't know what set that's going to be. But one of them will be filled with traps. So they will, like, be properly interacting with that one. Um, yeah, I think it depends on the thing that we're doing, but like they're there for interaction if we want it. No, that makes a ton of sense. And, um, if any of Sam's players are listening, uh, uh, Sam, uh, did like a, a mustache twirl into the camera. <laughs> they won't know which one is full of traps. It sounds like a lot of what you're doing with combat here and with more broadly, giving the players physical spaces to explore is quite a lot different than how a lot of home game home games run, right? A lot of home games tend to be very theater of the mind. And to what extent do you think players come in with an expectation that it's going to be a real theater of the mind type game? I know a couple players in your current campaign uh, suffered through two years of me DMing just all theater of the mind all the time. Ah, uh, I uh, I really love this table. Like the the players who come are like <sighs> one of my one of the players at this table apologized to me for sending too much character detail, and I don't know how to say it, but I was like, no, that's that's just so much less work that I have to do. You're putting so much story like into the thing. I'm never going to complain about that. So when we get to do theater of the mind, it doesn't, I don't think, feel onerous for anyone because they're like, they've come in with stuff. We also have a player who came to join us at, as sort of a, a, a messenger revenant on a mission uh, who hasn't really D&D'd before. And the little moments that I've witnessed at the table of the players doing that, like, that thing that I love about D&D of when you're excited to show somebody new this thing that you like and why it's fun. and uh, That's also been really sweet. And I think, 
I think there has to be a certain amount of that before you get to the comfort level to like really do all of the fun theater of the mind playing in and out of combat. That sounds really reasonable. Oh. Fun fact, I've been using Zoom every day for uh, <laughs> two years now, and I still have no fucking clue when I'm muted. It's, it's pretty bad. I guess we're getting to the point. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, can you share any media that you were, con- anything you were watching or reading while you're putting together this campaign? What's playing in the background while you're building these sets? Oh. Ah, uh, like a lot. Uh, I think especially during the pandemic, having like background TV on was helpful because I'm usually uh, used to being around a lot more people. So especially in like the depths of the pandemic. Uh, And some of that's just like the comfort food of television, Uh, 30 Rock and things like that. I did. uh, I did watch uh, both seasons of The Witcher at some point while building one of these. Uh, did that did that affect like the direction of the campaign? You know, watching The Witcher, did it become a little more Witcher esque? Uh there is there is like a little Witcher esque thing going on in the campaign that's new now for sure. I also um one of my friends I call up in between sessions to like workshop and fine tune and uh if I'm stumped, uh they're usually really good at coming up with ideas and we're on a boat headed down a river, and they were like, at some point, you got to do Apocalypse Now. So that was the the Green Dragon, like, started off as Colonel Kurtz, and then turned into the Green Dragon. Uh, so we've had that there. Um, I listened to a lot of, like, nerdy trivia or history podcasts, uh, and I watch a lot of, like nerdy history like youtube courses and things which uh youtube is amazing because if you want to learn a thing you can but the first thing you have to learn is like how to find what youtube channels you can trust uh but yeah so like there's also a lot of that uh a lot of when i've been doing this i've been listening to like world war one stuff um has i think come up over and over again Right. I think in terms of uh, kind of a global, all-out, years-long war, it, it's almost a natural thing to base your, your narrative around is World War One. And I uh, recently learned about the, the War of... What, the Seven Years' War. The Seven Years' War. The Seven Years' War, which... Uh, was like the First World War, because every place was fighting. It was just like mostly either colonial powers fighting each other or fighting the people they were trying to colonize uh, instead of having a good little center in Europe. But now that I've like dipped my toe into the waters of that history, there's a little bit of me that's like, oh, we could do some fun, like, uh, what might a little offshore... Uh, fight look like somewhere in the Clovis Concord or like uh, you know what I'm getting at no I, I, I look forward to hearing what uh, next time you come on the show I'm looking forward to hearing how that goes do you have any resources that you'd suggest to people I mean are there any YouTube channels that people should be tracking down their history on 
Oh, uh, there is a... John Green has a... Like, the, the author has a YouTube channel where he does a bunch of different history ones. Uh, and for the most part, I really like them. I think it's the problem with doing history is, like, some of his videos that are six years old, you watch and you're like, this is great. And also, like, you should do an update. Um, which sucks because that's not that long. But, like, I really like... I really like his, their Crash Course. Crash Course is the name of it. Um, I also like his brother who does the science ones um, and has SciShow with PBS, which is not so much history related, but fun for creatures. Yeah, yeah. Are your creatures mostly coming from the Monster Manual or, or what is what is your source for those? Uh, to like a bunch of Monster Manual, but also I think a lot of the... Like, clearly I'm using Mercer's Wild Mount, and, like, the, the DM Guide is a really good book. Um, it is really useful, and I use it a lot. But, like, I, I love the homebrew community, uh, and I love getting online and finding, like, the ridiculous, wonderful things that people... It's also the... The part of the reason why I was slow to come to D&D is because the image that I had of the, the like, community of D&D was uh, different than what I found the actual community of D&D to be. That, like, a uh, very, like, warm, diverse, welcoming group of people who enjoy nerding out on some made-up shit. And it's real fun to get into, like... Somebody who spent, you can tell, like, hours and hours and hours crafting this ridiculous monster uh, that's going to be super fun to play with. And it sounds like now you are the person spending hours and hours crafting <laughs> this ridiculous monster. Uh, I did, I did, like, I think, it, like, the, the thing that every DM does, where, like, you start a world build. You come up with, like, your little thing. We'll see if that actually goes anywhere. Um... But yeah, it is fun. It's like the the sense of satisfaction I got from uh, all of the like rigorous effort I put into school for so long that just evaporates at some point. Like D&D fills that void. Oh, there's all these books that you get to read and then you learn about all of these things. And, uh, and it is also why like it's a dope collaborative game because for all of the, for all of the bizarre shit I can keep in my head, like I'm no, I'm, I'm no rules lawyer and having a rules lawyer at the table is sometimes super helpful. There's a appropriate personality to go with that. Right. But when there's somebody at the table who can pleasantly be like, Oh, how far does that go? And be like, Oh yeah, yeah. We should double check this. Like, uh, is I think like, uh, a good uh, utility man for a DM to have. Absolutely, especially when you have, you know, a three-dimensional representation of where they are that's kind of keeping you honest. Uh, if that dragon is 60 feet away, they can see that it's 60 feet away. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, which, like, the only problem now with the sets is I keep on looking being like, oh, I need a bigger table. So next time your players come over, you'll unveil that you've built a new table. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 
Do you have any other resources? I'm actually really interested in whether you have any resources around around sculpting, around kind of building physical representations for your players to explore. So I'm going to be honest. When I, when I started doing the paper sculpting thing, uh, it was all like exclusively trial and error. Does this work? Does this look like the thing that it's supposed to look like? And if it doesn't, then you just crumple it up because it's cardboard I rescued from the recycling anyway, you know, like, uh, and the glue's not that expensive. Oh, uh, if you want to make sets, there's um, the pH neutral book binding glue is the glue that you want to use for your cardboard construction. It dries pretty quickly uh, and lasts forever. Uh, and is real useful. And sometimes if you put enough on, it can it can have some structural integrity. Um, I, uh, I do a lot of, like, Google image searching for real-world places that have uh, the kind of feel that I'm looking for. Uh, or I'll, I'll, from going through all this, like, random history stuff that I'm looking through be like, oh, I want this to feel like the Mongol horde, but I don't know what the Mongol horde looks like. So you get to do some fun things of like, what did cities on the Silk Road look like during the 1480s or whenever that was. Um, and then steal what I can and then lament the stuff that's architecturally a little too intricate for me to pull off in a reasonable time frame. Too intricate for now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. Oh, go for it. Go for it. No, no, that's that's all. I, I, I have a. I just got my first like block of carving stone, which is the new thing that I'm gonna do. And I don't know how much of that'll like bleed over into the D and D, but that could be fun miniatures. That would be incredible. Yeah, yeah, miniatures yeah. carved out of stone. That that'd be like a real fun like. Uh, if I was going to start a new campaign, like, welcome to the campaign, here's a piece. Or, like, a fun, like, end of campaign, thanks for playing, here's a little uh, figurine you can take with you. Oh my gosh, that would, yeah, that would be absolutely incredible. I was thinking you meant it was, like, for the, for the final boss of the campaign. I just, I, I mean, I guess, yeah, it really depends on who the final boss is. But in my head, like, if I'm going big, um, cardboard. Easier to get bigger for cheaper that way that makes a lot of sense cool thank you so much for taking the time it's been an absolute pleasure uh, thanks for having me on it was really fun thanks sam for taking the time to chat with us about your campaign i've been jake behind the mic and i'm production master riley the ghost that appears in my dreams has my face but aged and harrowed join us next week when we chat about the venerable minis war game warhammer 40k for more on the show, including links to all our social media, visit folderfrequencies.com slash campaign spotlight.